0: Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond.
1: Hello and welcome back to Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino and this is a podcast where we speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people also working in the field. Today, I've spoken to Shan Lee, who is the Managing Director of the Shiva Foundation, a UK-based organisation focusing on slavery and supply chains, specifically, although not exclusively, in the hotel industry. We talk about their Stop Slavery Blueprint, which is a fantastic tool to support the hotel industry think through all aspects of their business. We spoke at the end of October 2020. Thanks for downloading this episode and please get in touch with any feedback or further questions via at actions podcast on Twitter. Hi and welcome back to Actions. Today I'm speaking with Shan Lee who is the Managing Director of the Shiva Foundation. Welcome Shan. very good to be speaking with you today. Thanks
0: Kat, it's great to be here. I'm
1: really looking forward to hearing more about your work and what Shiva's been doing Uh, but first it would be great to get to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself?
0: Uh, Yes, so I am Canadian, uh, but I've been living in the UK for over 10 years now, I think it is, Um, but still hanging on to my accent, like (laughs) there's no tomorrow. (laughs) Um, So I originally came to study human rights. I uh, also studied law after that, but because of immigration issues, it just wasn't an option for me to carry on in that route Um, and then moved to the British Red Cross. Um, where I was doing youth education, humanitarian education stuff. It, it was an obvious leap because it was uh, about international humanitarian law. And that was partly related to my master's dissertation, obviously then doing the graduate diploma in law. It just made sense. Um, but while I was doing that, one of the, the essentially in a nutshell, the program, humanitarian education program, was about educating young people on issues like humanitarian law but also uh, refugee rights and human trafficking and I was really interested in the in, in refugee rights but also um, human trafficking and so found a job opportunity in Cambodia to work for a legal aid organization there which supported survivors of trafficking. Um, so went and did that for a while, and then came back and joined Shiva Foundation, which is a corporate foundation with you know the the big vision of ending
1: human trafficking and exploitation. Excellent, thank you. I think we might have crossed over um, at the same time at yeah, the Red Cross. I wonder.
0: I wonder. Wait, when did Must you have. start? Were you always? I started-
1: did you yeah, do anything 2000...
0: for the trafficking team though?
1: No, so I was in Malta beforehand and then I moved to the UK and started at the Red Cross in 2014. So I think we crossed over a little Maybe, bit yeah. before you left. Yes,
0: that's right because right before I left there was the it was like a budding human trafficking team.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's so some crossover. And yeah. Cambodia sounds really fascinating too. I, I lived in Cambodia for six months, but many, many years ago, not on human trafficking, what I was focusing on. But yeah, it'd be great to know more about what you were doing there. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cambodia
0: is uh, like just a bunch of contradictions. It's hard to explain. Um, so I was working with a local NGO, so a Cambodian-led NGO, Uh, which was usually part of a coalition providing various services to survivors. So everything from helping survivors escape situations to um, providing shelter, rehabilitation, and then legal aid. And so that's what our organization did. And we were part of our major program of work was a uh, USAID-funded multi-stakeholder initiative called CTIP, which was Counter-Trafficking in Persons. Um, yeah. And so I was supporting with communications, with funding bids, with, um, reporting to donors, um, quasi interviews, obviously Mm. because we had unofficial translation, um, and yeah, just highlighting the good work that they were doing and trying to help them scale up and get as much resource as possible. But it was one of those situations because, there are so many organizations there trying to do such great work and then so many organizations where maybe i was a little bit more skeptical skeptical about the good work they were trying to do and yeah. in the end i'm like is any of this you know are we getting anywhere with it or are we just kind of spiraling um so you kind of end up feeling a bit hopeless at times which is really a sad place to be but then but then also with the organization i was working with I, i'd be really inspired at times so that's what i mean by this weird contradiction
1: yeah, I can totally see that. Absolutely. And kind of feeling, yeah, at moments, what is the point of all of this? And actually, are we helping or harming, you know, or then um, and being part of that that process? Yeah. Um, and your role at the moment is managing director. Can you tell us more about what managing director involves? What What's, what's sort of your day like? Oh, my gosh, everything.
0: <laughs> everything you can think of. Um, so I initially started as the senior program manager and... Okay, so this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but off the back of the Cambodia work, um, I felt a little bit um, disillusioned with the NGO space. And I was really attracted to this role, the senior program manager role with Shiva Foundation, because it wasn't trying to, um, I guess, morph its projects into donor specifications. And it wasn't spending all of its resource on trying to find funding because it was, it was a corporate foundation. It was, the funding was pretty much secured. Obviously time (laughs) that's been changed a little bit um, with the upheaval that is COVID. But um, so I was really attracted to that. And what it meant was when I went into the role of senior program manager, my role was just about doing and turning these brilliant ideas and plans um, and sort of like nation um, bits of work into Outcomes and mm. outputs, and just making real progress. And then, yeah. after driving and almost like running ourselves to exhaustion because we were such a small team trying to punch above our weight, so to speak,
1: yeah. um,
0: we re-strategized. So I was one of the leaders on the the. Well, I sort of led the five year strategy uh, in twenty eighteen. And part of that was an organizational shift, getting more of a team, and then that's when I stepped into the role of managing director, because of, I guess of all my experience that I that I had had to date, um, and that then became less about the doing, more about the oversight. So mm. recruiting a team, making the team, making sure the team always knew what the strategic aim was, helping them design programs, helping them design M and um, keeping on top of them to make sure that they were delivering according to plans and that they were monitoring, monitoring and evaluating projects according to plans. Um, stakeholder relationship, building new partnerships, really uh, taking what we do at a local level. And, you know, if we're working with a couple of hotels, are we learning, learning anything there that we could um, shout about on a national platform? Is there something there that we could mm. uh, take and shift on a national or even international um, standpoint. So it's more of that big picture, that strategic mind that I'm that I'm now bringing, which is really exciting. Obviously, all of the typical administrative side of things, so, you know, budget management, forecasting, reporting to our donors, our board of trustees, line management,
1: HR stuff, <laughs> <everything>. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely jack of all trades and really great to be in a role that you can kind of use all of your experience and kind of strategize about that and actually make decisions about how is this applicable across you know other industries across you know other countries um yeah motivating i guess yeah it is
0: that's a really really exciting point is i mean it's difficult at times because i'm constantly trying to remind myself like is there anything here that's going to be useful to anybody but us and the one person we're working with um but when you get in the flow of, of reminding yourself on that, you know, the sky's the limit in some mm. respects. And the problem then is actually implementation. And can we achieve any of this? But you can start really thinking about like, actually, what can we do to genuinely prevent some of these horrible situations from happening?
1: Absolutely. Really interesting. And that's actually a really perfect segue into the Shiva Foundation and uh, learning more about what the organization does. So for those that are less familiar, can you give a quick overview of what is the Shiva Foundation?
0: Yes. So as I mentioned, we're a corporate foundation. And what that means is we get the majority of our funding from a corporate entity. So in our case, it's a group of hotels. Um, Our aim is to see a world where human trafficking and exploitation no longer exist. Um, I'm sure we're not alone in that in that vision. And uh, we do that by trying to address the root causes of exploitation, um, first identifying them and then addressing them. But we also strongly believe in collaboration. So we try to work with and support other organizations that are fighting exploitation, trying to prevent it, and supporting survivors. And what I think is unique about us is we straddle a lot of different world. So Mm. we are very much a business insider in some respects, but then we are also an NGO insider and we also work with government, whether that's local government, particularly in Hertfordshire or central government. Mm
1: -hmm. And our
0: three pillars of work are um, changing corporate practice towards normalized ethical behavior, uh, addressing root causes of exploitation and then cultivating a prevention mindset so that we are stopping exploitation before it even happens. But the first pillar is really like the backbone of the work we've done to date. That's the majority of our work has been working with corporates and in particular hospitality to help them mitigate risk of exploitation in their operations and supply chains.
1: And that is really going to be interesting to dig into a little bit more because I'm really curious about the supply chains and the blueprint that you've worked on and and unraveling more about that. Uh, Do you specifically focus on London or do you have a wider remit? um, And are you UK based or international?
0: So we're UK based. Uh, we focus on UK broadly. However, because the hospitality sector by its nature is international. So a lot of brands we work with may not even be headquartered here. Um,
1: right.
0: So we have an element of an international reach. And also we've worked with other partners, say, for example, in Ireland or um, Switzerland, where we're trying to share best practice and, and create more of like a industry approach to to this when I talk about hospitality a a whole international industry approach the Mekong Club which is doing great work in Southeast Asia we often liaise with them so but very much UK based for us
1: yeah but obviously the as you're saying like the industry is so connected internationally so it, it makes sense that that part of the work is is stretching across as well um and specifically wanted to focus on the stop slavery blueprint um can you give an overview of what that is Yes. (laughs) Um, That's
0: like probably the thing I know best in the world. Um, That was starting when the organization started in 2015. And uh, it's a toolkit. So in a nutshell, it's a toolkit, a very operational toolkit for hotels specifically in the UK. So we often refer to the UK Modern Slavery Act, for example, um, to address risk of exploitation um in their operations and supply chains it has templates policies practices um training resources risk mapping uh, uh, tips tools everything mm. that we thought you could think of to um to effectively help hotel- hotels it came out of our donors obviously are a group of hotels It was around the time that the modern slavery bill was becoming the modern slavery act. And we were thinking, okay, there's obviously going to be more of an onus on businesses to do something about this horrific thing that at the time, like people weren't even really aware that it was happening in the UK. Mm, As I'm sure, you know, if you were starting your team in 2014 Um, and we've said, okay, so what, what's the hotel industry doing? What's the good practice that the hotel industry is doing? And we really couldn't find much. And it's not to say that that good practice wasn't taking place. It just was not publicly available and it also wasn't even available in the franchise model between, a, you know, an international brand and owner operators of franchises, um, which we thought was problematic. So we said, OK, we'll just create our own model, but very much make it operational. So we worked, you know, really hand in hand with the hotel, well, with one pilot hotel and then across six um, to make sure it was fit for purpose. And I went through a lot of iterations during that time and then we consulted with everyone so uh international brands other hospitality organizations NGOs government law enforcement academics everyone we could think of to make sure it was super strong and then that is what's now freely available for hotels and other hospitality industry uh mm. industry organizations to pick up and use
1: yeah, it's really impressive. I'm actually quite struck by how comprehensive the, the toolkit is. Um so the website really accessibly makes everything available and it's really like easy to, to to work through. Um and yeah, each component is just really clearly laid out, talks about recommendations for policies and as you're saying, internal governance you know having a focal point um how many hotels have joined this process how many hotels have come on board so that's like a two part answer
0: first of all let me say thank you so much for saying that it's accessible because that was one of the main things that came out of that bigger consultation we did was that we were realizing people weren't reading through this like 60 page <laughs> document that we were originally right. sending out so we tried to make it more accessible so i'm glad that we achieved that um in terms of how many hotels have joined why i say it's a two part answer is because the problem with the industry is people don't like to talk about the fact that this is an issue and that mm. they have that issue themselves. And so we have been promoting it as widely as possible, um, and I can tell you a bit more about how we've done that. But I have to say that we will not ever know all of the ho- uh, the um, hotels that are using it, but we do know for a fact the ones that have taken on the majority of the toolkit and that have engaged with us on multiple interactions, there are 89 hotels at wow. that level. And we think there may be more. I know there are more because one for example that I ended up meeting through a different, you know, partnership told me like, "Oh, by the way, use your t- use your toolkit." I didn't even know who they were. We ended up identifying a worker who didn't have access to their own bank account, you know, like serious issues. So, we end up finding out that other organizations have used it, but they're not willing to maybe have as in-depth a partnership as the 89 that I mentioned.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's the flip side of having something, as you say, that is so accessible that it literally is downloadable from the website. It talks you through really easily, step-by-step how to do this. So it would be difficult to monitor the number of hotels that are signing up, right? Like people could just discreetly get on the website. Exactly. Use the tools, download everything. You know, there's a really helpful checklist I found, training even. Like there's a PowerPoint slide on there of training about trafficking. So Yeah, Yeah, we know
0: that it's been downloaded like over 800 times. But I mean, some of those were me, I'm sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's not it's not the greatest indicator. We know also that that PowerPoint, we later collaborated with a hospitality um, training provider, and they do online modules for, you know, HR, whatever it is, fire and say, whatever. And um, that training, because they have like a pass so they can properly monitor who's gone through every section of it and ultimately passed it and it's like 16,700 or so um people have have done that training module so that's another indicator that's a bit more I guess reliable than just downloads mm. of the blueprint
1: that's like thousands of people that yeah. have done the training yeah really impressive and another thing I guess I was reflecting as I was researching more about the Chief Foundation and your work was just actually once you begin to scratch the surface of the industry it's I guess I hadn't fully realized just how vast it is and there's so many aspects of the supply chain about you know what they're ordering and then all the employment practices and then I guess the use of the hotels as well right and that's another factor so it feels huge I mean how do you help the industry to not be put off by what a mammoth task this must feel like for people working in the industry that
0: is such an interesting question I've never thought of it from that perspective probably because I'm like in the weeds of it Mm. um I guess it's so my my sort of short answer to that would be by taking them through tools like the Blueprint, which is like, what do you need right now? What can yeah. we help you with right now? If it's a PowerPoint, I'll send you a PowerPoint. Run that training with your staff. At least you're doing that. Mm. Um, but when we do initial presentations, with whether it's with hotels themselves, just to get a taster of it, or if we're doing it at, you know with UK Hospitality, for example, who has thousands of members we do take them through those risks. And you're right, that could probably seem quite daunting. But part of me is also trying to scare them a bit when I do that. And I think Mm. the reason why is because in 2015, you know, doors were still being shut saying this isn't an issue for the industry. And that's not that long ago. And I think we, the first step for us has been Raising the understanding of the industry that exploitation happens. And, you know, the Modern Slavery Act may have helped make people realize that exploitation happens abroad in our supply chains, but we're also trying to say it can happen in your rooms with sexual exploitation or in the workers in your hotels themselves through outsourced labor providers. So we are trying to shake them up a little bit into action. So, I'm always taking the opposite approach, which is to make it like, it's a big deal. you got to think about it. you got to worry about it. And now we can help you and we can help, I guess, break down and prioritise. Prioritising is key.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I can totally see the rationale behind it. You actually do want people to realise the level of risk they're sitting on and the responsibility they hold for that risk. So, exactly. And that kind of motivates action then, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. So another thing that I really observed um, through your work is that you really take an approach of wanting to work with suppliers rather than dropping them or cancelling contracts. Um, And I'm really pleased to hear this approach, but I'm curious, could you tell us more about the rationale behind this particular way of, of approaching this?
0: So first I'll start by saying that one of the, what we are focusing a lot of our attention on right now in terms of a high risk supplier situation is actually less so the the supply chains for food or linen or bath products and more for the supply of services like housekeeping mm. um not that we don't pay attention to the other supply chain but we're we're like if we haven't properly addressed the workers in the hotels or the hospitality organizations themselves then yeah how are we going to you know deal with tomatoes from Italy or whatever yeah. um, so Part of that, I think these are organizations that work in the UK. I think they're more attainable in a sense, and um, we can reach them and we can engage with them. So, why not engage with them? We don't have the excuse of like, oh, there are tier three and we don't even really know how they operate. They're literally right there working alongside us. So, why not bring them on board? Also, our biggest um, argument is that this has to be something across the industry, this has to be a collaborative uh fight so to speak and you know housekeeping staff or whatever service that labor providers supplying are part of the industry so why not bring them on board and find out what they need to improve standards or find out what pressures they are experiencing that maybe cause them to cut corners or Mm. or whatever find out their perspective as well as the perspective of the um, hotel or restaurant um, and then finally the kind of biggest argument for not just cutting off your suppliers is that's just going to displace the problem so mm-hmm. if you obviously if you work with supplier a number of times and they are still just dogheadedly choosing to be criminal then you have to cut them off at a certain stage yeah. but we can, none of us really know how to address this that well right now and so I think it would be unfair to assume that some supplier particularly in a different country and with less power in that supply chain that they would all of a sudden know how to do it right away so why not work with them why not try to find out what what they need um offer resource to help them with it because that's something that's often overlooked but the reality Mm -hmm. is this does take resource so we're very much about collaboration and working with and then as I said if there are people who just don't want to join the journey then eventually yeah you do have to cut them off.
1: Yeah that makes complete sense and I'm glad you mentioned the challenge of sort of the different tiers that you know going up to tier two tier three can you think of or can you share any examples of of how we can try to manage that because I guess a lot of a lot of companies and organizations tend to focus on their tier one their immediate suppliers and not further up the supply chain. Um, Can you share some examples of, of how people can be a little bit more in control of other tiers as well.
0: Yeah. Um there isn't really a good answer to that. And the reason why is so your supplier may in fact be bigger and, um, than you uh as a hotel group, let's say. Yeah. And so you may ask them for details of who their suppliers are, but if they're not giving you those details, it is harder to work beyond that first tier. So that's just mm-hmm. a reality of it. Often suppliers can get very um closed off about who their suppliers are and I think it's this it's this competitive nature you know not wanting to reveal that are you going to skip them you know I'm not sure why that happens but it does happen quite a lot I think there are two ways to address this depending on your leverage and this is like the UN guiding principles is all about what leverage you have based on your size um and, and a variety of factors Empower what leverage do you have and then use that leverage? Don't expect to be able to go to tier 20. Um, if you're a small organization, that's just never gonna happen. But what what small or large leverage do you have and then use that to affect some good change? Um, yeah. so when we think about leverage and size, what everybody can do is prioritize. So risk map your first tier, and you will see who are the riskiest suppliers, just based on country, service or product, um, whatever it might be, you're able to to kind of identify those that are going to be the biggest risk. And then maybe look at like your biggest spend, are they a critical supplier? And then you can start to identify those that you want to prioritize first. Then really work with those, bring them on your journey, work together, dedicate resource, as I mentioned, and that's hopefully how you then get to their suppliers. And then work, do the same process, and hopefully, then get to their suppliers. So that's one way. The other way is working as an industry, because one group of restaurants or hotels or one boutique hotel or whatever it might be is not going to have the same leverage right. as an industry. So if an industry comes at this and says, you know, um, this is the standard that we expect from our suppliers, and we're com- we're talking about all of these brands, all of these um, international brands, all of these hotels. We all expect this standard of our suppliers, the suppliers are going to have to act. And part of that may be communicate with us about your your tier one suppliers and help us with that process as we go down the chain. It's all about leverage in a way and prioritizing.
1: That is something that you do, isn't it? You work through sort of industry bodies and, and collectives and sort of bringing, um, bringing the industry together so that that leverage is, is higher and more influential, right? Yeah, well, af- after
0: we did that initial... Search, I guess, for good practice in the industry and found that we couldn't find it. Um, we realized one of the issues was that the industry itself wasn't really sharing that information. And so we said, okay, well, let's bring the leaders together and those that are willing to share. And so we set up the Stop Slavery Hotel Industry Network. And again, that was operational. So it, it had um, international brands, uh, hotel owners, management companies, um, labor suppliers a whole variety of different entities coming together saying like how can we um, figure out whose responsibility lies where how can we use this collective action to achieve something and that is now trans we're currently right now transitioning into um, it's called a hospitality protocol which we will be co-chairing so Shiva Foundation will be co-chairing with the GLAA so Game Master and Labor Abuse Authority Great and this is being modeled off of the construction protocol, which now has like 150 members, I think. And so they're all, everybody who signs up, like a signatory, um, agrees to come together collaboratively, share information, work with law enforcement, essentially raise the bar of the industry. And I believe we have about 20 organizations in the wings we haven't launched it yet um but we're hoping once we do launch it to to really expand and then that will achieve exactly what you were just saying there which is this collective industry action which just strengthens everything it's also a really important space for keeping on top of learning right Mm. so if one organization finds a trend and they're finding oh my gosh actually we've noticed a lot of fake passports then that could be really useful information or intelligence for the other organizations in that network
1: yeah so there's just so much benefit actually in in being able to come together and share that learning and share the trends that people are starting to monitor and um as you said it's so difficult it can be really difficult to dig into a particular supplier and go further down their supply chain but if if one you know company does it with one supplier and another company does it with another supplier and then they're collectively sharing that information that's you know jointly beneficial
0: exactly and there is this thing called audit fatigue
1: mm. which is
0: you know there are c- certain suppliers most suppliers are being audited left right and center by very similar organizations then it's like can we actually just work together on that and just yeah. share that information and obviously mindful of the fact of competition and all that that stuff but if if we can try to reduce that audit fatigue make the audit process if we're going to continue with that a bit more meaningful um and use our leverage as an industry to shift practice and power in a way to all the organizations to feel empowered to actually do something about this
1: yeah it makes so much sense Um, And another thing I wanted to to explore with you is, I guess, one of my reflections is that we sometimes see um, supply chains as being a separate element or a separate aspect of modern slavery responses. It's kind of, it's sometimes perceived, even because, you know, often they're their own events or they're, you know, separate kind of uh, world of It's seen as a different world than the prosecution world or the protection world. Uh, But something, again, that comes through really clearly in Chiva's approach is a really holistic view. And you mentioned the three key areas of your work and supply chains being one, but also you're talking about prevention and support programs. Um, How important is that holistic understanding of modern slavery and trafficking for people that are specifically working on slavery and supply chains? Like how much do the people that you're speaking to in uh, companies, how much do they need to know about, you know, the root causes or the protection landscape or the support services that are available for people? That
0: is an excellent question. I would say I can't answer how much they need to know, but I can say that in My experience, it's quite a journey in shifting mentality to understand that businesses have an impact on people, whether that's exacerbating uh, poverty, which we know is a a root factor. Um, That's that's obviously like a really easy one to use. So why I'm using this as an example is because um, I think the risk of any sort of supply chain work or any even like just corporate responsibility uh, with regards to human rights is that it becomes a bit more of like a compliance tick box exercise. Right. So like if we're looking at the Montezuma Act, same sort of thing. We we've, we've heard of stories where the legal or compliance teams in businesses are going, bah, don't even bother with that one because there's not nothing's really going to happen if you don't if you don't bother, and it's it's really seen as a compliance thing rather than actually our practice here. Has an impact on people here, and right. so shifting that mentality into it's not about just setting up a protocol and walking away. It's we have to think about the the exacerbating factors which you are directly re- linked with that cause somebody to be in a situation where they have to accept really poor working conditions.
1: Yeah. So
0: what can you do on that? But then also. Um, how, when you spot that, are you going to make sure that they are given appropriate and adequate support? Because that that opens a whole other world where you actually have to engage with NGOs and law enforcement and whoever it might be and realize that, how do you truly take a victim-centric approach? And how do you, you know, what, why might uh, a potential victim not want to speak with the police? And all of these different nuances to a what causes exploitation and b what you do when you find it that is a massive shift in thinking and so part of our responsibility is educating so that shift actually happens and this is what we talk about when we say our pillar is about shifting corporate practice to more normalized ethical behavior we want it to to all the aspects that I just mentioned there we want it to be like health and safety We want it to be like, oh, well, you don't want someone's leg to be chopped off or whatever, because my setup can cause that. And then if someone's leg is chopped off, how am I going to appropriately deal with that? And it's the same thing with exploitation. Recognize your, I guess, your um, responsibility in that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It makes so much sense. And I guess it is, a. I mean, it is such a complicated and complex situation, right? And so it's never such an easy thing to say well you know this is a a poor labor practice or you know there's factors that cause people exactly like you said to accept substandard work conditions or to have to be in situations where you know this is happening or exploitation occurs and so I, I guess understanding the complexity, understanding the more holistic view means that you don't just simply terminate the contract with the supplier because ultimately people who were in a vulnerable situation in the first place will end up actually in a worse situation because then they've got no income at all. Um, So it's about sort of appreciating that it's quite nuanced and it's, um, yeah, everything's sort of connected.
0: And also on that, because exactly as you said, like if you don't work with the supplier, then that's just going to displace the, and actually you're just taking, even if it's not great income, you're taking that income away from a person who's vulnerable. Um, but there are a lot of things that happen on this side of the supply chain. So like the lead agency, so the hotel or whoever. Um, so for example, there's really low engagement with unions in hospitality. Um, there's, it's a it's a fissured system. it's it's a fragmented structure with that whole uh, franchise relationship that I mentioned. So the brand will not necessarily mandate to the owners. So that responsibility just ends up getting lost into thin air. So that there's you know non-compliance with minimum wage all the time. They're always on the top of the of Baze's, um name and shameless. So there are a lot of these practices that happen, That seem minor, I suppose, or could be um, argued from the perspective of the business. But if those are happening, we have to recognize how they are eroding, essentially, the protections for workers further down your supply chain. If you don't recognize unions, how can you expect your Cambodian supplier to recognize unions where it's super important that they do? So it's, it's about noticing how you're, you have to practice what you preach, I guess. And that is so important and recognizing how all of those little steps do have an impact all the way down.
1: Yeah. And it's about that normalizing, isn't it? So yes. we accept certain erosions here and, and what we would consider maybe as minor erosions, but actually what are we normalizing then further down the chain? Exactly like you've described. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And how does this all fit with um, the Modern Slavery Act? So you mentioned that earlier on and and the the transparency and supply chains requirement where companies and businesses have to, over a certain threshold, have to fill in a modern slavery statement. Um, How effective is that statement or the requirement to fulfill that statement in the industries that you support?
0: Um, not very, (laughs) is my short answer. So (laughs) the Modern Slavery Act was great at the time when it was created. Obviously, it was quite cutting edge and it did start a lot of conversations and it helped us get into doors that were previously closed. Um, but five years on, we've realized that, well, essentially, if it's not going to be enforced, then what's the point of it? Um, so with hotels, we were very much, um, in support of a report that came out about a year ago by Walk Free from the Mindaroo Foundation, uh, Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, WikiRate, and the Australian National University. So they created a report that was called Beyond Compliance in the Hotel Sector. And they looked at 71 hotels. So this was just about hotels in the UK who, or hotels who reached the threshold of the Modern Slavery Act. So the 36 million turnover a year, all of that. There were 71 hotels that produced statements. There were maybe a handful, if not less, that were required to produce a statement that didn't. So that's, a, that's not very, that's what, like 75 hotels? That's not many if you think about the number of hotels there are out there. So yeah. even of those 71 that produced reports, um, something like 25% actually did it in full compliance for the minimum requirements of the Modern Slavery Act. And the requirements wow. are just posted on your website, have it signed by a board of directors. Um, so it nothing about the content at all. It was just literally like, did you post it in the, in the right place and actually post it at all? So only 25% were compliant in that sense. Um, and then when you look into the content, 68% didn't even acknowledge their risk areas. So I don't know if that's a lack of knowledge or a lack of action. So there, there was some damning um findings in that report I would say and to me that just shows that the the effectiveness of the act isn't there Um, it's not having the effect that was intended and I think that in large part it's due to enforcement so if there's no penalty for not enforcing or for not following the act then what's you know you're going to have legal teams that are like it's not worth your time Nothing's yeah. going to happen if you don't do it. And then if we talk about the idea was to have this filtered down approach. So, you know, if those that reach the threshold are actively engaging with their suppliers, then that will bring along the businesses that don't reach the 36 million threshold, Right. But that's not happening. We are hearing from suppliers like it's not my requirement to produce a statement, so I'm not going to. And with hotels, it's something like 80 percent of the industry does not reach that threshold. So that's that's massive. It's never going to have the intended impact if it doesn't come with teeth.
1: Yeah. And I guess there are some reforms and some recommendations that are made to try to give it a bit more teeth and to try to make it a little bit more um, enforced and enforceable. Um, But I guess that also speaks to why Shiva Foundation is so necessary, because you're kind of, you know, taking the responsibility even further to actually work with with hotels and then with their subsequent suppliers to actually try to do the things that, you know, are not currently captured under the act. That's
0: exactly it. We're actually like separate to our hotel work. We are producing right now, and hopefully it should be launched soon, uh, an SME specific toolkit. So it's like a mini blueprint for SMEs, which obviously won't reach the threshold of the act. And we're doing that with um, Stop the Traffic. And our thinking with a lot of our approach is what are the barriers to action Some might say knowledge. So fine. We are trying to raise awareness. We're trying to speak with as many membership bodies, as many individual companies, whoever to raise that awareness. Fine. So let's drop that as a barrier Two might be resource. So fine. We will give you the resources for free. You literally just have to lift them and put your company's name on it. So that can no longer be a barrier. So the only barrier I'm left with is like unwillingness to actually address this and, we're trying to advocate against that by saying it may help you, actually. It may help you get contracts if you are seen to be a bit more ethical. You know, we know the government is, in terms of their own supply chain, is taking, taking this a bit more seriously, which is good. Um, so hopefully we start to see a shift and we start to see more companies. In the absence of stronger enforcement, we're just start, we start to see more companies who are willingly taking the lead on this.
1: Yeah, and I can see what you mean though about that will and the motivation to get it done. And I guess um, consumers and customers have a role in that and actually maybe people asking to see their that's, statement that's or exactly you know, and actually holding people to account. But yeah, exactly. Also, like you say, there needs to be more sort of policy oversight or government oversight on this as well. Yeah, exactly.
0: Everybody, I guess, needs to be involved. It has to be normalized. That's it. We have to all be talking about it. We have to all know about it.
1: Yeah. Um, So, Sean, there is so much more that we could talk about, but there is only a certain amount of time. And so we are out of time for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing all of this super fascinating information. Uh, What should people do if they'd like to find out more or get in touch with you or the Shiva Foundation?
0: Um, Go to the website, which is uh, shivafoundation.org.uk. People can email me. So it's just Sean, S I A N, at shivafoundation.org.uk
1: obviously like brilliant. twitter
0: all of that stuff if people want to get in contact <laughs> that way
1: <laughs> that's brilliant and i'll include all of that information in the show notes as well in case people uh, want to click on some links and get to the website so thank you again john thank you so so much for being involved yeah thank you kat great pleasure thank you also to the listeners or the viewers and until next time bye Thanks again to Sean for this conversation. Thanks also to you for listening. All the links to information about the work featured in this episode are in the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast. You can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is also in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, responses to trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Raphael Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldachina.